Good afternoon, just. I'm Robin Williams. I do the science show on the ABC, and you're missing it right now. <laughs> and um, we have some wonderful things to talk about. And the title is really extraordinary. Can trees talk, think, and heal? Is Prince Charles in the audience? <laughs> is this science, you ask yourself? Most extraordinary. Let's interview, let's, in fact, not interview, but uh, meet the guests. Alex Gort, your name and position, please. So, my name is Alex Gort, and I'm a Nature Connection Guide with Nature and Wellbeing Australia. Brian? I'm Brian Pickles, and I'm a lecturer in ecology at the University of Reading in the UK. Monica? I'm Monica Gagliano, and I'm a research associate professor in evolutionary ecology, University of Sydney. University of Sydney. And what do you have to do with trees? Alex, first. What do I have to do with trees? <laughs> well, in fact, the first thing I'm going to do before I answer the question, I'm going to throw a question to the audience. I would like to do a straw poll, just hands up, anyone in here who has known a tree in any way that was significant to you? <laughs> now, Practically keep, everybody. Keep, keep your hands up. I want, the, I want the people at the front to turn around to see. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I think some of you might be. And I think what I have to do with trees is several things. I have a, I have a day job where I help to save trees and conserve trees and look after them. But as a nature connection guide, we use trees and plants and various other elements of nature to help the human part of nature to connect with the non-human part of nature and to get all sorts of benefits from that process. And may I say, I didn't find that response surprising because my colleague Gretchen Miller did a series on Radio National on RN on that very question, and you wrote in with your expressions of what trees mean to you personally, and that was published as a book by the ABC. Brian, what about trees and yourself? So most of my research is on forestry generation, uh, and I'm particularly interested in the things that trees do below ground that most of us never think about. So when you look at a tree, you tend to see the trunk, the branches, the leaves. You don't really think about all of the interesting things that are going on below ground. They're forming all of these interesting associations with mycorrhizal fungi, uh, all these tight symbioses. Um, and much of my research is looking at this interaction between trees and fungi and the environment. As Alex said just now, talking about uh, ways in which you can conceive the nature of things, I'm sitting next to three human beings who are a trillion cells, but who have three trillion visitors and cohabitants, in other words, microorganisms. And if you think of a tree in exactly the same way, being all those invertebrates, all those birds, we have a possum that comes down to nick the orange peel off the front garden compost every day, every evening at the same time, but he's big and visible. The other ones, the millions of them, and underground, as you said, even more millions. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Monica, what about you? 
I breathe. You breathe? <laughs> um, I don't mean about your body, I mean about your trees and I your relationship. I am the tree that I'm breathing in. Mm. <laughs> I see, you breathe it in, right. <laughs> and um, my research is on uh, learning, memory, and uh, all the other things that we do not think about. <laughs> And uh, my primary collaborator in my research are the plants. And so trees and plants for me are my collaborators and my teachers. How much of this is science and how much of it is kumbaya? <laughs> as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me <laughs> describe something that uh, I think is very interesting about trees and, and plants for that matter. One of the awards on Australia Day that went for a scientist was one of the top awards, Liz Dennis from CSRO Plant Industry, who does work on the gene for flowering. And it turns out that there is an experience of the plants in winter where they actually register the cold of winter and they memorize, if you like, with a mechanism called epigenetics when therefore yet you're supposed to flower because at that stage you've reached summer. So in many ways they've actually shown a mechanism for memory in plants. And we're seeing the, the effects of climate change on this in lots of different parts yeah. of the world because trees are flowering effectively at the wrong time because the cues mm -hmm. that they have learned to uh, register with when should I flower, to put it into human terms, um, has changed. So. Mm -hmm massive flowerings at the wrong time of year, and then suddenly you have another cold spell and it's bad news for the tree. And it's accumulating in its effect year by year, more and more. Extraordinary. I just like to clarify, I'm not talking about that kind of memory, no, okay. which I wouldn't call memory. That's uh, part of the evolutionary process of adaptation. Uh, the, the processes that I'm talking about is literally like a new experience, it's not something that you have already experienced through your history. New experiences, things that are totally, uh, perhaps even irrelevant to you, but they arise and they happen. And what you do with that experience and how you change your immediate behavior within the lifetime of that individual uh, to accommodate for this new knowledge that has arised. So I think imprinting, which is really the, the term for that kind of memory, it's a very different kind of memory of what I'm looking at. And what are you looking at? Give what I'm looking at is, for example, the kind of memory that would be involved uh, in the process of learning, like a dog would learn a new trick. So, and I actually did this experiment, and I guess many of you probably are familiar with the story of the Pavlovian dog, and, uh, but I just did the Pavlovian pee. And, uh, <laughs> And in that case, you know, that, that's what I mean, it's like it's an experience, it's a new experience and the, the P in this case, just like the dog, needed to connect two events together, two events that didn't have any meaning to start with as an association and then they acquire meaning to their experience. And that it's a short-term time scale, it's like three days not an entire season or years. And uh, so I'm interested in these kind of processes. How does that work without a nervous system? Ah, that's a nice question, isn't it? <laughs> the question would be like, how does it work with a nervous system? With difficulty, yes. They can't <laughs> quite explain it, yeah. 
but uh, there, there's more and more. Well, one version is that you've got circuits involving the nerves, and long-term memory turns out to be proteins laid down in the nucleus quite often, so you end up with something that you could ascribe to all sorts of animals. Chromatin and small RNAs are involved, for what we know. And the thing is, um, the, there is actually a really good example to, to open this kind of conversation. And it comes from the marine environment and it comes from sponges, which are animals, not plants or blobs. <laughs> and, uh, and they actually found that sponges had these genes, the code for a neural system. But sponges, throughout their entire evolutionary history, they never went that way. They never developed a neural system, they, never, they don't have a brain. And uh, so the first interpretation of that was like, oh, you know, they, they lost that capacity. And instead, I think that we should look at the other ways, like uh, that capacity to produce ultimately a brain or a neural system or whatever else. It was from there, from the beginning, and evolution is a process that likes to tinker with things. So the building blocks are the same, and so there is a unifying element throughout all forms, and then different forms do different things depending on what they need specifically. So that's how you do it with our neurons. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you've been nodding, you agree? Ah, life without neurons. Well, it seems to me that the majority of the life on the planet survives without neurons quite happily. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's, special, what's so special about a neuron? Um, yeah, I think that every day we can see around us examples of life surviving and thriving quite happily, experiencing the world in the way that it experiences and senses the world through experiencing temperature or touch or um, lots of other things through chemical and electrical signals. And all a neuron does is capture a chemical and an electrical signals in one way and other parts and other cells that aren't neurons can do it in a different way. So, yeah. That's well, I know that was something like Mimosa pudica. You know Mimosa? You just touch it when it's open and suddenly you can work it out. It's, it's if you like, the, the water pressure system in the plant. It then shrinks up as if it's got a nervous reaction. But it's a mechanical thing rather than a learning thing, isn't it? But they do learn. So in Kew Gardens, they have mimosas that no longer will close up when people touch them because so many people have been going through touching them. So the plant doesn't bother to close up its leaves anymore. Yeah. It's been habituated. Which is exactly what you're doing right now while you're ignoring some people on the stage <laughs> and ignoring all the noise and the sounds and the various things that you have already decided through your experience that are not really consequential. And so the mimosa, uh, in, at least in, in the experiments that I did for that habituation test, did exactly that. I used to, I used to drop them. <laughs> and, uh, and in the process of dropping them, which of course is something totally unnatural, but it has to be, otherwise the mimosa might already know what's going on. And, uh, but it learns really quickly that it's like, oh, there is no consequences to this, it's really annoying, and I hope she stops soon. 
but um, but actually it it doesn't really matter. I'm not gonna die for this. And so the plants literally start reopening the leaves as you are poking and disturbing. And as Brian just mentioned, it's like uh, you know the the plants also outside laboratories are learning that. And uh, and it's interesting that uh, as we were chatting the other day. Uh, some colleagues still think that no, nah, we don't want to talk about this. <laughs> it's like, but it's happening right there. <laughs> so, and when you go gardening with with shears, do you do that? I tend to use my hands more than uh, shears. But sometimes you pull the leaves off rather than yeah. cutting them. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Is that just as bad if it's got a, a kind of response? Well, the thing is, and I guess this is also the, the same kind of response that I would give to uh, those that would ask about like, oh, so if plants are feeling, thinking, and all of this, then we shouldn't eat them anymore. What are we going to eat? Yeah. And, uh, and I think the answer for me would be the same. And it's, it's not about what you're actually doing, but it's how. And so if you connect with the other and realize that this is a form of life, is a living being that is integrated inside your body as food, and uh, you must, I mean, if you stop thinking about this, you must surely feel gratitude for the fact that you've been giving your life thanks to someone else's. And, uh, and so I think it's respect for the plants or also the animal. And so when you're in, the, in your garden, if that's what the garden as a community, so as the, as the whole requires for this plant to be removed from the picture, then you do, but do it with respect even then. Yeah. Well, you've been... In the beginning, Alex asked about a personal relationship with the tree. I mentioned briefly my own where the possum comes down, but it was halfway up the house, quite a small house, in Balmain in Sydney when we moved in something like uh, 24 years ago and now it's twice the size of the house it's trying to interfere with the flight path <laughs> which is quite interesting unbelievably huge and I'm tremendously fond of it and only fear that it will get so large that with the immense winds we have now that maybe it won't be strong enough with what you said about the roots going down meters, mm. was it just now or were you on the radio this morning saying that? I think it might have been on the radio On the radio. This, did you hear him? He was talking about uh, this sort of thing um, on, on um, actually Jonathan Green's program at, uh, just after nine o'clock. But Alex, your own relationship with, with a particular tree. Mm. <laughs> Describe it. Do you have a name for it? Well, it wasn't just one. The truth um, and only the truth. <laughs> well, a whole there, group. There, there were a couple at different stages, and I'm, I'm sure for many of you there would be more than one tree in your life, and it comes and goes depending on where you are. So for me, when I was in my late teens in the UK, I was a little bit lonely, and uh, I found myself a very lovely, large, stable uh, conifer. I don't know what kind and I would use it to just sit. And it was actually, it was a greater companion for me than my peers, and it, what was special about that tree, and for me then extending out into my 
relationship with nature more broadly is uh, the aspect of nature that is non-judgmental. So every single day in our lives, the media, our peers, our families, the social media tells us how we should be in the world. You're ugly, you're too thin, you're too fat, you're whatever, you have to wear these clothes or listen to this music. Nature doesn't do any of that. It just exists. It just is. It just is itself every day. And to me, the non-judgmental element of just being in a natural space is a very powerful one and one that I think we can all tap into whenever we choose to. And yeah, so <laughs> it, it, was, it was the non-judgmental element of being with this tree that was quiet and companionable. And it's not like I had a conversation with it. I could have if I had chosen to. I have had conversations with trees possibly, I'm not sure. Um, and, and why not, mm. you know? Um, in fact, in some of my work sometimes, we sometimes invite people to um, introduce themselves to a tree. So when we go into a natural space, that natural space is our host. And when you go to somebody's house for the first time, you introduce yourself and the host will introduce you to where things are. So we invite people to introduce themselves to a tree or to the space by actually sitting down and having an internal conversation with a chosen tree. Does Which anyone refuse? The invitations are open. <laughs> so whatever that person feels comfortable with is up mm. to them. Mm. Brian, what about you? Special, um, special tree. Special trees. Well, I remember being a kid running around in uh, Aberdeenshire, and in summer, as soon as the light was out, I'd be out running around with my friends in the park, running around under trees, sometimes climbing up them, sometimes falling out of them. Um, didn't have any screens to look at. We didn't know that TV was around while it was summer because we were all running around in the forest. Um, and I distinctly remember seeing all these weird square patches of trees in the hills and thinking, what the hell is that? And it turns out that those were uh, little patches of Sitka spruce that were being grown for forestry purposes really, really close together, so they grow like matchsticks. All their limbs would fall off. They grow close together in these square blocks, and then one day, somebody would come along and chop them all down. I thought, Sitka spruce, what a rubbish tree. And then a few years ago, uh, as part of my time in British Columbia, I was able to go out to the coast and see what Sitka spruce actually looks like. And they grow into these massive trees that can be hundreds of years old. They're absolutely huge. They're really impressive. Um, but as a kid in Scotland, I just thought they were little crappy matchsticks. So, yeah, yeah. it's interesting yeah. seeing them from different perspectives. While you're talking about that massiveness, go underground and describe the wood wide web. Sure. <laughs> so, from the, from the laughs, I'm taking it that some people have heard of the concept of the Wood Wide Web. So essentially the idea is when we think about trees, when we think about plants, we often just think about the thing that we see. And as I said earlier, their roots are extending into the soil. And um, in many cases, plant roots, they aren't actually that good at extracting water and nutrients from the soil. So most of them form these symbiotic associations with fungi. So it's important when you're thinking about a tree that it's not just a plant, it's the consequence of all the interactions that that plant has with 
fungi, with bacteria, uh, with birds, with mammals. Uh, and that's what produces the structure that we call a tree. And could it exist without that? Have they planted trees in something like just plain sand without that? Uh, nutrients, perhaps, but without that web. Well, let me take that back a little bit. So the trees are forming these associations with fungi, and the fungi can link up multiple plants. They don't all do this, but many of them will attach to different trees from the same species, or even uh, herbaceous plants and trees, um, and they, they can move water and nutrients around and signaling compounds. Um, when we go back in evolutionary history, uh, we find fossils of very primitive early mycorrhizal fungi uh, as far back as 440 million years ago. So it seems that ever since plants have come onto land, they've been forming these associations with fungi. And some of them have lost the ability to do this. In some ecosystems, it's not actually necessary, or plants have developed other strategies to extract nutrients from the soil. And certainly, you can get plants to grow uh, in some circumstances without uh, that biology, but then they start to lose their resilience. So you have a change in the environment, and you don't have much fallback in terms of your ability to tap into, say, water or gather nitrogen from organic matter and so on. So they're really important. All of the trees that you see in nature, uh, they're going to have mycorrhizal fungi associating with them. Monica, your own personal tree. I have a few, of course. Um, I guess one of the ones that has been particularly present in the last few years has been uh, an acacia. And of course, there's so many here that is like, uh, it has helped me to connect really strongly with this land. And, uh, and of course, I was based in Perth for a long time, so it was uh, an acacia that grows in that area. And now I need to build my new relationships with, uh, with the acacias or whoever tree uh, wants to have a chat <laughs> here in, on this side. Um, but um, yeah, I, um, I, I'm at a point where I don't think I could even imagine not having these conversations mm -hmm. with the trees, I mean. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not talking metaphorically either. Ah. Yeah. Spiritually? <laughs> no, literally. <laughs> and if that means spiritually as well, then yes. Yeah. And I, um, so when I say my plants are my collaborators, I literally mean that. Now, Brian said just now that he saw this patch of trees wiped out, cut down. Last week in the science show, I broadcast some science from Switzerland, where they've shown a new way of counting the trees on Earth. Not just from the sky, when you see canopy, and you can't differentiate numbers of trees, but on the ground, as well as every other means available. And they've found the number of trees on the planet is not 400 million, but 3 trillion. And a consequence of that measurement is that there is room now for another 1.2 trillion. And this addition will make all the difference, well, a lot of the difference, with our concerns about climate change. However, at the same time, we're chopping them down and burning mm -hmm. them down. And The Economist, a few months ago, had an article on 
Australia and trees and said, we are in fact the chainsaw capital of the world, especially in northern Queensland. More than Brazil, even, with what they're doing to the Amazon. And of course, when it comes to fire, <laughs> Victoria last week, maybe still. California, as we broadcast last week, thousands upon thousands of trees being burned down. What do we do about that? Come on, Alex, have thoughts. Well, as I'm sure many people here would understand, as, as humans, we are a part of nature. You have to ask, how can we not be? Now, there are extensions and meanings in that idea, or in that it's not even an idea. We are nature. I consider myself to be a sort of professional environmentalist. I've worked in the conservation movement for 20 years, trying to help the environment. And I'm sure many of you have, whether you're a volunteer or a professional, whether you donate money or donate time. I consider that those people who are trying to help the earth uh, are nature protecting itself. They're the part of nature that is trying to protect itself. The flip side to that idea, or if you like, think of it as a spectrum, the other end of that spectrum is, what about those parts of the human nature that are deliberately harming other parts of nature? What does that mean? Does that mean that there's a part of nature that deliberately harms itself? And then another extension on that idea is that that doesn't sound right. What animal sets out to harm itself? What, what organism sets out to harm itself? So is there a sickness, a disease? Is there something that isn't quite right in that part of the human world? Kind of pathology. Yeah. And then, if that is the case, then how do we heal that? And so part of the work that I do ultimately is attempting to connect the human part of nature with other parts of nature for several of those outcomes. For me, the end point is helping people to increase values around protecting nature and therefore enacting those values in their behaviours. But another end point can be a kind of healing process that happens for some people. Now, I don't set out to expect that people are going to be healed just because they come out with me, but I do hope that maybe what I offer can help some people. Whether, whether they know it or not, some people go through extraordinary experiences because we invite them to do A or B or C. And we use very specific things to uh, help that process. And some people feel a sense of healing. Some people feel a sense of grief. Some people tap into the beauty of nature and feel exalted and awe. And all of those things help the human part of nature to heal itself. But we need a lot more of it. Mm. I could hear them tapping just before. <laughs> and Brian, what about you? When you're talking to classes or young people, do they realise that as, as we look around us, trees, great big, vast ent entities made of this hard wood, that came from thin air, okay? <laughs> that stuff all came from the, the air that surrounds us, which, which seems almost miraculous. How many of them realise that? Well, and it's not just that. It's, it's not just their photosynthetic ability. It's 
the associations that they form with the soil. So all of these amazing trees started out as little seeds. And those seeds had a limited amount of resources to get them going. They started forming symbioses to help them collect additional nutrients. They put out leaves to photosynthesize and produce carbon, some of which they give to their symbionts to help them grow. Um, and I think well, a lot of the work that I do uh, is really about forestry generation and trying to get people to think about how, how do we go about replanting trees. So we're very good at cutting them down. We're, humans are great at resource extraction. We're very great at short-term thinking. Um, we're not very good at thinking about, okay, well, if we're going to cut down these trees, how are we going to replace them? What should we be planting? So how do you reach them, Brian? How do you convince them it's worth it? How do you convince them it's worth it? By explaining to them about how, um, how trees work, um, what benefits we get from having trees around us. Do they us? know what benefits? Do they understand, for example, that in the old days, when in the exploration, the European exploration of uh, this land, when they chopped everything down, they were bringing the temperature up, making the soil too free, blowing away, <laughs> and also you know, the protection that you can get from surrounding, using them as part of agriculture effectively. Yeah, people have been using trees as part of agriculture uh, for thousands of years. And, um, we're, I mean, a lot of the things that we're doing, we're really rediscovering what people have been doing before. Um, all this intensive agriculture and intensive forestry, you're setting up often monocultures of trees, which are not a natural uh, thing. Uh, even when you look at a forest that's dominated by one particular tree species, in nature, it's not the case that that's the only species there. There are all sorts of other species interacting with them. We just don't, we just don't really think about them because they're not commercially valuable in many cases. Um, so trying to engage with people and explain to them what trees are doing in ecosystems um, and why they should be interested in them, how they're these communities of organisms, um, it's really important. And it can be really easy to despair about what's going on in the world in terms of resource extraction, forest fires, climate change, pollution, um, political situation. What can you do? Well, maybe we can all go out and plant some of the right trees in the right places and help to uh, feel like we're actually doing something. Monica, do you despair? No. Why? <laughs> because I was born optimistic, I think. <laughs> but also, um, I guess, and I'm going to, you know, pull the threads from both of your sharings is like, for me, the, the thing that emerges listening to you is also the idea that fundamentally is a question of mind, our mind. And, uh, and now we have been conditioned to think that certain things are okay. And one of the things that is fundamental to the use of forests or how to change people's perception is like that we see plants as objects. That's what you use, objects. And so the moment uh, we as humanity realize that there is no object here, all of these others are not objects for our use or abuse. Uh, they are all subjects and we are in here in a context of kinship and not even conservation. It's like, you're not conserving anything, 
you are relating. We are, the entire space is always, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we are aware and conscious of it or not, is always a relational space. And this is not a new concept either, because philosophers have been talking about this, for, and there is plenty of terms that describe this process. So suddenly, if you see yourself as um, an aspect, not a part, but an aspect of a relational space, then inevitably there are things that you cannot justify. And so it's a question of changing our mind, because then the things that we are so desperately trying to change in terms of action will naturally change, because you just do not want to do them anymore. And so I think that, the, for me, the main core uh, at the moment, including, you know, with the as we are witnessing the destruction of a beautiful forest, is about allowing people to connect into this relational space so that they realize that whatever they are doing out there is actually being done here. There is no out there. And so choose, if you're going to do self-harm, at least be aware that that's what you're doing. So cutting down a forest is not an arm that you're doing to the forest, it is self-harm. And as you said, when you have a condition of someone in our, in our community that is, uh, uh, is uh, stricken by so much pain that they need to harm themselves, well, what do we do? Well, in our society, most of the time, we probably lock them up somewhere. But really, what do they need? They need to be embraced. They need to be feeling, again, part of the relating in, with the community that they belong to. So we are the ones stricken and we need to be healed in the way that we can feel the connection with everything around us as in this context of kinship. And this, of course, in, in Aboriginal cultures around the world, this is not new. Mm. <laughs> this is how they interact and connect with the, with the other, which is themselves all the time. We just need to remember it again. Can I... Alex. Yeah, I want to add to that, because in the beginning you said mind. So to me that means headspace, cognitive, but then you extended it into feeling. And I think one of the things we need to do as Western world people is to acknowledge that we're actually emotional creatures. We tend to not consciously interact with our emotions very much. We, we, we surround ourselves with information. There's information overload everywhere, information through social media. We, we put a lot of weight in data and knowing things and we count things, whether it's birds or trees, and we give them names. But that is not the only way of knowing the world. And we have to acknowledge that there are other ways of knowing and understanding the world. And we have to say we are creatures of emotion. And in fact, neuroscience shows that when we make a decision, you can't make a decision without uh, the emotional center of your brain. People who have had accidents and damaged the emotional center of their brain actually cannot make decisions. So we are emotional creatures at our very base, and we need to kind of be okay about that. We need to be okay to talk about that and acknowledge that, that we're not just information, cognitive heavy creatures, and we need to balance that. And I, I like to think the work that I do 
invites people into that non-cognitive space. Even politicians? <laughs> Why not? Why especially not? Yeah, especially. Especially. <laughs> especially. Okay, have you... They need to be embraced. Yeah. <laughs> you have an election coming up, at least one, two. We can try to embrace them. <laughs> I'd like to see you out there doing it. <laughs> yes, just think of a couple of politicians and being embraced by Monica. I'd love to be there. <laughs> I honestly, to be honest, I did consider like a little hand grenade first, <laughs> but then I realized, no, 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 that's not the way. <laughs> and um, I would, I, I dare you. <laughs> I would do it. Okay. Well, there was a politician here yesterday, the Premier of South Australia. Yeah. Did you talk to him? I wasn't here yesterday. Ah. <laughs> There may be another opportunity. Excellent. <laughs> Brian, politicians. In Britain, do they talk about anything other than Brexit? Oh, my God. Do they talk about trees ever? Well, actually, I've been uh, doing some work with uh, getting involved with DEFRA, which is the uh, Department for the Environment and uh, Natural Affairs, and uh, looking at new effective ways of uh, forest regeneration in the UK. Uh, thinking about things like tree diseases. The UK has this huge, hugely artificial diversity of uh, plant species, which means that we don't just have trees from all over the world, we have a whole bunch of uh, diseases that have been brought in with them. Um, and also symbionts. You asked earlier about whether you can get trees to, to grow in soils where there aren't any symbionts. Well, when people were trying to grow eucalyptus and pine in tropical islands, what they found was that after they introduced some soil, they were able to get them to grow uh, because they needed the, the symbionts. And now you find invasive pines and invasive fungi in Hawaii. <laughs> we're really good at doing things like this. Um, politics. Do we have to talk about politics in the age of Brexit, which has basically paralyzed the entire country? Uh, they don't really talk about anything else on the news. Recently, there was a very telling uh, couple of days where there was a debate about Brexit, and the entire House of Commons was full. And the next day, there was a debate about uh, all, the, all those amazing school kids who were coming out and talking about mm -hmm. climate change and climate change action and saying, listen to us, we're the next generation. And the House of Commons was empty. Hardly anybody bothered to turn up to the existential threat uh, of the next generation. So I think that says a lot about mm. politics. Yeah. I'll just give you one example while you're talking about Britain that came out of Kew. A few years ago, there was a gigantic storm. A gale blew through London and knocked any number of trees down, precious trees, in the Royal Botanic Gardens. And there was one in particular that they were terribly sad about, being lifted right out of the ground. And they decided, oh, well, we'll just let it sit there for a bit and, uh, you know, put it back into the hole a bit and waited for it to die. In fact, it came to life again. <laughs> and the secret was that they'd put ropes around and instead of the public coming along and looking at this amazingly precious tree which is gradually dying and they thought old age, the pressure on the earth had been depriving the tree of what it needed. And once it was freed by this strange process, 
it recovered and it's still going strong. Do you know that story? I've heard that story, yeah. yeah. Think about um, all the people walking around in the festival in the botanic gardens today, compacting the soil mm-hmm. and the fungi and the bacteria and so on. Um, it'll probably take it a little while to get over that. That's right. There is a way of rejuvenating, but uh, going back to the bad news, uh, you're also based in North America, in Vancouver, and there along the West Coast, all the forests affected by climate change and diseases, they're dying by the hundreds of thousands. What's happening? Um, So that's one of the big projects that I'm involved in at the moment. It's the Mother Tree Project with Suzanne Samard, where we are looking at uh, tackling uh, climate change and forest regeneration by uh, setting up experimental sites in lots of different ecosystems, lots of different environments, uh, and looking at uh, different ways of harvesting and regenerating uh, the forest with a view to trying to find solutions to how do you get a forest to regenerate when it's being subjected to all these uh, this wide variety of stresses. And one of the great things about that project is that we've been able to engage with lots of First Nations communities mm-hmm. who have been thinking about the concept of mother trees for generations. It's not an alien thing to them. Um, and so we've got lots of our field sites are now involved with First Nations communities. Um, and we are... We're letting things grow and seeing what happens. And we're going back and doing the science and trying to understand how it is that they're yeah. responding mm. to the environment in the different places. The pests used to be in small numbers and now they're in larger numbers. And that's yeah. half the problem, the beetles. Yeah. So the mountain pine beetle went through British Columbia and killed something like 18.2 million uh, square kilometers of forest. Because it wasn't getting cold enough to kill off the uh, beetle larvae anymore. They just had this massive population explosion. And if you look at where, you look at some of these forests that have been impacted by the beetle, and you'll see green trees, which is where the beetles are right now, red trees, which is where the beetle was the year before, and gray dead trees, which is where the beetle was two years before. And this is just white out lodgepole pine across large parts of British Columbia due in part to elevated temperatures and uh, changes in fire control regimes and overplanting of lodgepole pine. We have time for questions, about uh, 15 minutes. The one thing, uh, the drumming was quite nice before, but I don't hear the bats. The bats were some of the best part of the audience. (laughs) And Andrew Ford is doing the music shows right under those trees where the bats grow. And uh, I do miss them. I hope they can hear roughly what we're, we're talking about. There's one microphone. Would you put up your hand? And yes, we have, with any luck, there in blue, a question from the front. I've seen pictures of pipes feeding carbon dioxide gas into tall trees. Is that been an improvement for the tree and the biota, or is it a negative? So you mean the, like the face experiments? Free, Ele- elevated free carbon air. dioxide atmosphere around the tree. Sure, they're really interesting. So you'll often hear people talk about, oh, CO2, it's just plant food. <laughs> what happens when you elevate carbon dioxide is that trees will tend to allocate their carbon in different ways. So they will change how much they put into the roots and how much they put into above-ground biomass. 
And what they do varies depending on whether you slowly increase the amount of carbon dioxide that they're exposed to, or if you just spike it and suddenly change the amount of carbon dioxide. So um, in some cases, they'll grow bushier. In some cases, they'll put more uh, carbon into their roots. In some cases, they'll put less carbon into their roots. And all of these things that change how the tree will respond to the environment. So is it a good thing or a bad thing? Um, in some circumstances, it can probably be an okay thing. I guess we'll see. It's this huge experiment. Question at the back. Thank you. Um, Brian, you talked about the relationship of trees with the symbionts. Um, you didn't talk much about the relationship of trees with each other. Are you familiar with the work of the German forester who has proved that they help each other and that their roots interconnect? That's not his work. That's, that's him talking about some of the work that Suzanne Samard and various other people that I've worked with have been doing. And yeah, the, the trees are connected up to fungi, the fungi are connecting up to other trees, and the fungi are really good at moving resources around. Uh, there are signaling compounds that get transferred, small quantities of carbon, nitrogen, water, um, and so there's this big support network in the soil, uh, and some of the research that's been done has shown that uh, as much as 20% or 30% of the carbon that goes into one tree you can then find in other trees because it's being transferred around by fungi, which is crazy. The research that I've done, we don't see things on quite that scale, but a small but significant fraction of uh, the resources that go into one plant can then subsequently be found in another. So there's, there's all these interesting connections going on below ground that you can't see, but they've been doing this for millions of years. Who's next? Please, in the front. He's a very fit chap, by the look of it. How much does glycosphate interfere with that, um, the connections of the mycorrhizal fungi? How much does that, you mean Roundup? Yeah. How much does Roundup interfere? Well, I haven't done any experiments on that, so I can't really comment, but I do know that there are people working on the effects of glyphosate on not just plants, but soil health its persistence in soil, it seems to be very persistent, um, and it gets picked up and transferred around by, uh, by soil microorganisms as well. So I, I think the whole point about Roundup was it's not persistent in the soil, that once it's there, it changes. Because it just magically disappears. Uh. <laughs> the problem with that is that the data that we might get are not necessarily independent. So it's very difficult to know. One at the back and then on the other side. Thank you. Um, Monica, or perhaps Alex, is there any evidence that our communication with trees um, heals them or changes them in any way? Um, uh, scientific evidence? Yes. Because we have evidence of all different kinds. So you don't need me to answer uh, necessarily. Yes, I do. But, but <laughs> uh, scientific evidence, I don't think we have taken that question seriously yet. And, uh, but I'm planning to. 
So give me a little bit more time and then I will have the answer. Thank you. Mm. Uh, hello, my name's Clive from the desert. I'm wondering if you, any of the panel would like to comment on a notion from the desert, Peter Latz's notion, that the fundamental war that's been on the planet since the beginning of time is the war between the grasses and the trees, and that man, humans, have been the tool of the grasses to defeat the trees. It's <laughs> a new line, yes. Grasses versus trees. Well, before the grasses came along, the trees were doing quite happily. Um, and they'd been interact they both interact with fungi and with each other. In the Pacific Northwest, uh, depending on where you are, so in British Columbia, we're seeing grasses intrude into Douglas fir forests. And if you go down to California, we see the reverse. So it de depends on where you are. Yeah, grasses are monocots, and as, as opposed to dicots, which are most of the trees. But uh, there, there are trees which are monocots, like palms, aren't they? You're nodding for radio. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm a real professional at science communication. He's saying there yes. I'm saying yes. <laughs> and, they, and they're all associating with, uh, with the fungi as well. Next question. This one is for Monica and Alex, I think. Um, being that when trees are attacked by insects, by fungus, whatever, they try and self-protect. Can that be used in British Columbia? And has there been evidence of the trees trying to protect themselves? And has it been used anywhere else to harness the toxins that they give out to protect themselves? Well, the, the only um, thing I know about that particular area, these guys might know a lot more, but um, there is a, uh, a conifer in northern Asia called the Hinoki pine. Um, and there's been some really interesting work in Japan done on this particular pine. So trees produce uh, a kind of chemical called phytoncides, and they are produced to kill bug threats to trees. Um, so this scientist in Japan, he found out in a variety of different ways, he did lab experiments, he did people experiments, did all sorts of experiments, and he found out that when people smell this particular hinoki pine oil, our um, T killer cells in our immune system are boosted. And, and depending on how much you smell and for how long, the boost can last quite a long time. So there was a really interesting experiment um, done in this line where they had several, uh, they had an experimental group of people. They spent about one week uh, camping and walking in nature and they measured their T cells before and after the experiment. And then they measured it a lot later and they found that the boost to the immune system lasted for 30 days after they came back from that experience. So I think what's interesting uh, about this is that those chemicals don't just do things to the bugs, but they do things for us too that are good. Um, how we harness that is uh, another question. Hmm. Surely one of the big problems is that uh, to adapt like that, the trees would, ha would need thousands of years. And uh, climate change is going so fast, 
and the bugs are taking advantage of it, obviously, spreading and spreading and spreading, that uh, you know, we, we, we have to do something drastic. Monica? Well, there are also, in continuation to that, um, there are also um, many other disturbances which are directly caused by the presence of human activity and uh, which interfere with the ability of trees not just to produce the right chemicals so that they can protect themselves, because they, they know how to do that. We don't need to help them with that. Um, but actually interfere in the channels that those chemicals are for to send information across, not just to repel those that you don't want uh, you don't want around because they're attacking you, but also to call for help from those that actually can come and kill your problem. So, and this interference is actually what we should look at. Instead of trying to isolate the chemical and then boost it and whatever, it's like the system knows exactly what to do. Remove the interference and you might give the system a chance to do what it's best at doing. Because when we add more, we never know, from experience actually, we do know, that uh, often the outcomes and the consequences become very unexpected and sometimes not so, so positive. So instead of adding more elements into it, it might be useful to remove those that we know already are interfering with. And in the context of uh, monoculture, for example, this is really clear. And some of the plants, we were discussing this the other night, some of the plants, and these are famous plants, you know, cacao, one of them, um, they're losing their ability to literally communicate with each other about the situation around, the businesses, you know, business. <laughs> um, because they are in this condition of monoculture which does not support these communication channels to thrive. So, simply stop putting cacao in monocultures. And cacao is not the only plant. And that's why, sorry I had to reiterate, but it, it's, it becomes a natural place to fall back into. It's like, cacao was just doing fine. It doesn't actually need any help. We have decided, we have made our mind up that having monoculture is a brilliant idea. And it's a, such a bad idea with no scientific basis whatsoever, because it goes totally against what nature does. It reduces or eliminates biodiversity, which is the very thing, the element that nature uses to thrive. And not only that, in time of crisis, it is the biodiversity, the level of biodiversity that allows a system to, to remain somehow and cope with the stressor, whether that is climate change or whatever. So when you remove the level of biodiversity or you reduce it to places like in a monoculture, of course, the one insect arrives and it's like, excellent, these are all the same and they have no clue what to say and what to do, <laughs> all mine, and we lose it all. So, I think the plants don't need help. We do, <laughs> and uh, and it's, again, it's, a, it's literally a change of our view and perspective of how we are being part of this world. And final thoughts from Brian and then Alex. Yeah, I love what you. I love what you're saying about monocultures there. We're, we're so used to trying to manage nature and our first instinct is to make everything the same so that it's easier for us to deal with. But 
that's, that's not reflective of natural ecosystems at all. So why are we so surprised when a disease comes along and starts killing everything? Or when the climate changes and it turns out that, in fact, our food production relies on uh, climate being within a particular uh, band of temperature. And now we're finding that coffee's not doing very well in lots of places, which is really bad for me, because I need about four Emmy. cups to get going in the morning. Um, because we've been growing all these things under very, very standardized conditions that just don't occur in nature. So yeah, I think we need to move beyond the monoculture mindset and start actually using ecological processes or thinking about embracing ecological processes in what we do, rather than trying to imprint our will on everything. And can I just... Uh Monoculture, not just in relation to plants. We are the monoculture of our own cultural system. And that's where the main problem is as well. Alex. Yeah. I would like to leave you with an invitation. I suspect that most of you are here because you already are well connected with non-human nature and you value it. And I would invite you to strengthen that connection and I invite you to extend your own invitation to your families and your friends to be with them in natural spaces as much as you can, to play with nature, to respect it, to be compassionate with it and deepen that relationship and have fun with it. And yeah. Put the phone down and get among the trees. <laughs> yeah. Monica, what's the name of your book? <laughs> Thus spoke the plant. <laughs> and it's literal. And Monica will be signing the book over there, I think. I think so. Afterwards. <laughs> We're back tomorrow to talk about fungi and mycelia and such like. But in the meantime, if you'd like a book, over there. And please thank these wonderful guys. Thank you.